proceeding from the great commission given by Jesus to make disciples of all nations, the early church exploded and countless souls were made new by the atoning work of Christ. Dead hearts were made alive and churches sprouted up throughout the world. As a need for clear and concise biblical interpretation arose, the Reformed Confessions of the Faith were written and still have a major impact on the church today. The Confessional Collective desires to see healthy, theologically sound churches planted and on mission for the Kingdom of Christ. Welcome to the Confessional Collective. Welcome to the Confessional Collective, where truth meets mission. My name is Aaron Carr, and I'm your host as well as the pastor of First Presbyterian Church, of Trenton, Michigan. The Collective is a band of confessing pastors, planters, and churchmen, and each week we have a confessional brother come share their wisdom and experience. And in today's podcast, we have Devin Mead. Devin is the sole proprietor of the Presbytery Inn. He also writes for the Reformed Collective. And so, Devin, how you doing, man? Doing well, Aaron. Thank you for having me. Dude, we are excited about you being here. Uh, I know that you're also uh, involved in, in many, many different things, one of which is the Reformed Pub, which uh, yeah. we're, we're all a fan of. And so just excited that we can spend some time and just talk about confessionalism and and uh, writing and whatever else God kind of leads this conversation towards. Um, why don't you just do me a favor and give a little background of who you are and what you've been up to? Sure thing. I'm, uh, I'm 32 years old, and I live in upstate New York. I've been living in upstate New York my entire life. Uh, I work in the healthcare field, and uh, I'm married. My, my wife and I are going to be celebrating our fifth anniversary this weekend, actually. So we're excited about that. And uh, I have two daughters, a three-year-old and two-year-old. They are blonde-haired, blue-eyed, and beautiful. So about the time they turn 14, uh, I'm in a lot of trouble. And uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I, I sometimes joke I'm going to be spending a lot of time on the front porch polishing my firearms, you know. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> but uh, at any rate, uh, we uh, – and uh, yeah, so I'm living up here in upstate New York and uh, uh, doing the Presbyterian and the Reform Pub and all that stuff and just enjoying life. So – I got to ask, how did you get involved into Reformed theology, and obviously specifically this being the confessional collective, confessionalism? Totally. So I actually uh, got swept up in the Young, Restless, and Reform movement of about, you know, 10, 8 to 10 years ago now, when it was first big, when um, when Piper was, was really gaining steam nationwide and Driscoll and um, a lot of those guys, you know, very early on, I, I didn't grow up exactly Christian. Uh, I went to a, a Dutch reformed church for a few years during high school, but my family was more or less nominally Christian. And, uh, when I was in high school, I, I went to a Dutch reformed church. It was sort of in the main line. Uh, there were some good things about it. I learned the apostles creed. I learned the Lord's prayer. Uh, we had a catechism Kesis class, and uh, that was that was for our confirmation and uh, of our baptism, and we uh, we went through the Heidelberg Catechism. So I can recall when I read through the Heidelberg Catechism now, just devotionally, I can recall some of those questions coming back up, but none of it really uh, sunk into the heart because I, I wasn't regenerate at that point. I was, you know, really living in the world, living a more carnal life, a sinful life. 
Um, and I really went full bore with that when I went off to college. And it was after I got out of college, a series of events happened that really got me to begin to question the existence of God and in a positive way, you know, starting to think, you know, there's more, more to this than what I have thought there was. And, um, eventually, you know, through some mentorship and through talking with some folks and I'll throw in there that my wife was doing some missionary dating. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I, 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 I came to faith in Jesus Christ. Um, and actually, uh, this would be a whole different tangent for another time, but I actually came to faith in a Mennonite church. Oh, wow. um, starting with, yeah, yeah. In an Anabaptist context. Um, and it was shortly after that, that uh, a, a good friend of mine who's a missionary out in Uganda now, and she helps build water systems. I, I was struggling through Genesis one. I, I said to myself, I'm going to read the whole Bible. I'm just going to start reading the whole Bible. And I got to Genesis one verse 27. And I started asking her questions about God and man and man being made in God's image. And I said, if we are made in God's image, then, then what does that mean? And a lot of my questions were sort of facile at that time. What does that mean for marriage? And did God fashion marriage somehow after his image? And did, does that mean that there are certain marriages that wouldn't be okay in God's eyes? And she said, you know, I know just the guy that you should be listening to, and his name is R.C. Sproul. (laughs) (laughs) And that is kind of where it began, uh, through him, through uh, Piper, through Driscoll. And then a couple years later, so this is is 2007 or so, probably around 2008, 2009. um, I can't remember the exact date when it started, but as I was searching for more podcasts, I came across the Reformed Forum. And I can't say enough good about the Reformed Forum. Just as another podcast, a group of brothers in our Reformed context is doing a podcast. Those guys were – I was listening to them in the first set of episodes that they were doing when there were really not a whole lot of Reformed podcasts. And they were talking about stuff that I didn't understand at all. I mean when they were talking about Van Til and Meredith Klein and Voss and I'm going, I don't know any of this, but it sounds amazing. All I knew is that they kept saying, they kept talking about the Westminster Confession. They kept saying, well, Westminster says, well, the Westminster Confession says. And I said, you know what? I got to see what that says. And so I went out and I got a copy of of the Westminster Confession. I I like wrote a handwritten letter because I was was a poor uh, graduate student at the time living in, in the west side of Buffalo. And I hand wrote a letter to some lady at the OPC who probably thought I was half baked or something. And she's so I'm I'm writing this down and I'm going, I need a copy of the Westminster Confession. Can you send that to me? And they sent me one in the mail and I read it. And um and that's kind of where my relationship with confessionalism began. Wow. Now what did what did your discipleship look like in the sense of how you were growing in Christ and these doctrines that are reformed? Yeah. Early on, I mentioned how I came to faith in a Mennonite church. I, uh, unfortunately, because of a series of events, that church had to close. So shortly around the time that that was happening, shortly thereafter, um, I was actually living, I was living in a split level house in Buffalo, the way the houses are set up there. I don't know how it is out in Trenton, but you can get an apartment where there's somebody on the first floor and then somebody's on the second floor. So you're sort of sharing a house. And, uh, the, the pastor of a church that was right around the corner from my apartment, his name, the, the name of the pastor was Bob Tice. He lived right upstairs from me. 
So I was living in the downstairs of this home and he was living upstairs. And Bob Tice has been a, an incredible theological influence on me. And he's, he is a Pentecostal Arminian. So I, I say that that's kind of like he's like a Pentecostal with a good break system. <laughs> and, um, but he's also a very theologically astute guy. So he was noticing early on that I was somebody who really wanted to dig deeper into theological study, but didn't really have a compass for how to do that. So he was really good about noticing, okay, you, uh, you clearly, you know, are interested in reformed theology. Let me give you some good resources on how to explore that. Wow. And so he was encouraging of that. Um, he, over the years, he's even sent me old books of his by reformed authors that he said, you know, I noticed I had an extra copy of this in my library because he has a massive library. He was, uh, trained at Fuller Seminary and, uh, he also got his PhD at Northeast Seminary um, here in New York. And um, so he, he would send me copies of Reformed books. So, so let me get and this I, right. He, he's, he's, a, he's a Pentecostal Arminian, and yes. yet he's willing to pour into you Reformed theology because he saw the passion for theology. Absolutely, yeah. And he was working on a doctorate on the, uh, the subject of the Trinity and global mission. So he would, you know, say, I'm reading this too. And we would talk about theology that isn't confessional, but that he was looking into. So we would be talking about Miroslav Volf. We would be talking about some cutting edge Pentecostal theology, because while I don't agree with it, there's a lot of actually very uh, sophisticated Pentecostal theology that's currently being written and that not a lot of people are talking about that isn't really known outside our confessional context. And, and I would have issues with some of it, but it's it's good that people are trying to sharpen theological reflection in their own traditions, too. Right. So at any rate, so he, he would kind of point me to those as well. So a lot of my early training was not only in the confession, but also in a lot of writing that was outside of my tradition. Um, and he would point me to a lot some Pentecostal theology. Um, some Bardian stuff, you know, Carl Bart and some, some other stuff like that. He would point me to C.S. Lewis's writing and stuff like that. He would point me to Wolf, um, some Pentecostal theologians. And, and it was it was good for me. It was a good experience to kind of be a little bit more well-rounded. Um, and I was attending his church at the time. I think if most people went to that church, they would recognize it as sort of your typical, um, your typical generally evangelical church. I don't think anybody would really find anything that different about it, except maybe for the fact that it was mostly made up of refugees from the third world. That was, that was the one distinctive about it was, um, English was the minority language in the congregation. So that was also a very interesting experience because I got a lot of, um, I got a lot of of the experience of folks who were doing theology in the third world too, which was kind of neat. So anyway, so that was kind of the context in which I was, uh, reared, um, and then it's, it's been since then, um, since I, I've left Buffalo, I've moved to a different part of the state and now I have kids to raise and I got to think about how do I disciple them? How do I catechize them? How do I teach them, you know, and raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And so that's taken me deeper in, into the confessional tradition. Now, now you are, as you said, by your own, by your own words, you said you kind of, the young restless reformed was what initially brought you into the Reformed theology. And I, I yeah. want to ask this question. 
what what other what are some of the benefits to that young restless reformed that you saw obviously god used it in your life to bring you into reformed theology and then the deeper uh, uh truths of confessions were eventually open to you but what other what other benefits do you see yeah i i think probably they were touching a nerve at the time and a lot of younger guys now See, I'm 32 and I'm already talking about younger guys. <laughs> a lot of younger guys now, like, you know, in their, in their earlier mid-20s, they, they don't know what was happening theologically in that time. The emergent church movement was crippling a lot of evangelical theology at the time. I mean, they were really questioning the whole seeker-sensitive model in certain, in really fundamental ways, fundamental ways. They were really attacking that. And looking at it as, well, what what is church in the first place anyway? And what is the gospel anyway? And what is scripture anyway? And why do we talk about scripture being inerrant and infallible and authoritative? What does that even mean? And eventually a lot of those guys just went into what I would consider complete apostasy. Sure. And a lot of people at, in that time were really confused about, well, what 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 does it mean to be a Christian right now in our context? The great thing about the Young Wrestleson Reform Movement is that I feel like, despite its flaws, it was a movement that God raised up in a time to give a certain generation of men and women a clarity about God's word and his gospel and his power unto salvation in Jesus Christ. And it was something that was urgently needed at the time because it would have been very easy for me to just read Brian McLaren or Tony Jones and go, hey, this sounds good. And today I'd be, you know, in a coffee shop talking about some, you know, strange Spanish poet that I think somehow communicates the gospel to people when it has nothing to do with scripture or the confession or what God's word is pointing us to really um, and what the spirit wants to do in the church. So that was that was a real threat at the time. And I think the Young Restless and Reform Movement came alongside of that as kind of an answer to it and was helpful. Um, and because of that, a lot of folks, I think, were driven towards confessionalism. They, that was sort of the bridge to it. I can testify to that in our own church, watching a lot of the young millennials come in. It was the Young, uh, young Restless and Reformed books and podcasts and authors and such that that began to stir a fire in them that now we were able to open the confessions and show them the depth at which uh, the theology really had by standing on the shoulders of those giants. And so I, I definitely hear your story in many of the, the young millennials in my own church. But you, you said something interesting. You, you said that, that there was good, but that you kind of hinted that there was also some bad. What are some of the, mm -hmm. the concerns you have about that movement? Good question. There was actually a point, and uh, I'm all about citations, and I'm not sure I can give you the citations because so much of Mark Driscoll's ministry is now no longer available online. Or maybe it is, and I just don't know where to access it. But Mark Driscoll gave a talk at a conference once where he said that there wasn't a whole lot of reflection during the time of the Reformation about what it means to be the church, because we were so focused on the doctrines of grace and justification by faith and all that. 
that it, it's it's only been recently that we've really been thinking about what is the church. And looking back at that, I was thinking about this not too long ago. Looking back at that, I say to myself, that couldn't be more wrong. Because in the time of the Reformation, what it meant to be the church was incredibly important. And the doctrines of grace wasn't just about uh, how we get saved. And it wasn't just about getting us jump-started on our spiritual life. And I, I know those men wouldn't say that either. But it really informed a particular ecclesiology a particular way of discipling people, a particular way of administering the sacraments, and a particular way of governing the church. And there was so much rich reflection, whether you're a Presbyterian or you're a Continental Reformed or you're a Reformed Baptist, there was a lot of reflection in that time on what it means to be the church. And I think that what the Young, Restless, and Reform movement missed in its time was a true reformation of the church. I think that they had a solid biblical foundation in what the gospel meant, but I don't think that they were looking at how that impacts our understanding of what it means to be church and fell prey to a lot of what was at that time sort of the mainline evangelical uh, more seeker-sensitive models, but maybe with a reformed-ish gloss on them, and it really didn't think in a, in, I think, a full-orbed context about issues of worship and church government. Um, and we've seen some of the fruit of that with with some ministers of that movement um, since then, um, which is unfortunate. But uh, but I think that was probably one of the biggest flaws. It, that and I, this is probably part and parcel to it was while it pointed people to the confessions, I don't think it explicitly was trying to push people towards confessional churches. And I think really that would have been a real strength. There was a lot of momentum and I'm hoping actually that momentum is coming back because I'm seeing it now where people are being pushed towards confessional churches where that kind of ecclesiology gets lived out. Well, isn't that always the danger is that you get a little piece of truth truth, and you stop there. You don't keep digging. And you see that yep. in, in that movement that there was a, a love for, let's say, the five points of Calvinism, but it didn't begin to really go beyond the, the, the sovereignty of God. It, it didn't really go into the fact that everything is about the glory of God. And it didn't begin to probe deeper into what we would call confessional truths of, of who God is and, and, and why God has done all that he's done, uh, his works of uh, providence and, and creation. Um, just when you look at that and you begin to, and you begin to think out think through the, the direction of movements like that, it does uh, bring a lot of uh, uh, nervousness to a lot of the Reformed writers of old and uh, uh, the, the generation that precedes us, and they began to look at it almost very cynically. But as you've already pointed out, there's been a lot of good that's come from it, and I think it's up to our generation, my, my, me being 42, and I know you said you're in your 30s, our generation has a responsibility to grab the hands of others who have tasted uh, from the promised land, if you will, and, and point yeah. them to go deeper in, into the honeycomb and, and to really lap up uh, the fruit that is there. Um, let's kind of move over to um, the, the topic of, of the Presbytery Inn. And what is the goal? Why, why did you start it? What, what, what motivated you to come out and say, hey, we need this? 
Yeah, totally. I was I was thinking about this in anticipation of your podcast, and I was talking with my wife about it. I was and I was thinking, you know, what what is the Presbyterian about? And she looked at me kind of cynically. She's great. She keeps me grounded. And she said, you just started it to share your beer glamour shots, okay? (laughs) (laughs) And and she was joking. But in one way, that was kind of true. What I was thinking about was there's – I wanted to kind – I wanted to find – the niche rut that I was trying to fill was there's there's a solid number of blogs out there for pastors and ministers – who are in confessional churches in the PCA and the OPC, and they write blogs that speak to pastors and ministers in those contexts, and maybe to educated laymen. And uh, and that's a good thing, and I've learned a lot from those blogs and from those websites. But I wanted something that was maybe a little more geared towards the layman, because I am one, um, and I, I try whenever I can in my writing to, to keep things as simple as possible, but while also pointing people to the richness of the reformed perspective and theological reflection on a particular issue. Um, I wanted something that the layman could read and could understand. Um, but that was confessional in nature. And, uh, you know, just to very, very honestly look at some of these issues that come up in scripture or that have come up in church history, or that come up in the confession, and say, you know, a lot of people sometimes want to say that the that the confession, it was written by men, and it was made in a particular historical circumstance, it's not infallible, and so therefore, you know, some of these truths don't matter. Now, I agree in a cert- to a certain extent, it's not infallible. It says, the confession says of itself it's not infallible, but the confession teaches a true system of doctrine. It teaches what the scriptures teach. And so I wanted to, out of my own conviction about scripture and the confessions teaching on scripture, I wanted out of my own conviction of that to say to others, look, you should be driven towards the confession because it teaches us something true about God. Is it infallible? No. Um, Does it teach error? I don't think so. I think it teaches us things that are true about God. And um, I wanted the Presbyterian to be a place where I could explore confessionalism at a layman's perspective, and that really took confessionalism seriously. If I were to ever um, write something on the Presbyterian where I really disagreed with something in the confession and I knew that I disagreed with it, I would make that really clear to people. And I would try to explain why the confession explains it the way that it does and maybe why I disagree. But I gotta tell you, there's a lot of times when I say to myself, you know, I'm not seminary trained, I'm just a guy living in the Northeast who is an armchair theologian, and this was a document written by giants of, of, the church, of church history. Um, guys who really were trained in scholasticism and in classical methods, and they really knew what they were talking about, and they were soaked in scripture. So I really try to defer as much as I can to what the, the confessions teach on the Presbyterian. And I try to make it fun. I try to make it manageable, uh, understandable. 
Um, I know some folks, they're not immediately going, when they read a passage, they're not necessarily going to think, I'm going to go read Matthew Henry's commentary. So what I try to do is, you know, if I, um, for example, I'm going to write, uh, one of the things I do on the Presbyterian is I've been following the Machine, Robert Murray Machane's uh, Bible reading plan that takes you through the scriptures in, uh, in a year. Uh, you get through the New Testament twice and through uh, and the Psalms twice and through the Old Testament once. Uh, I've been trying to write on a semi-regular basis what those what's coming up in those readings and uh, some reflections that I have on them from a confessional perspective. If if Matthew Henry were to come up and have a really good comment, I think to myself, you know, I'm going to share this. I'm going to share just a little chunk of it because I think somebody would benefit from reading this, and then maybe they'd say to themselves, hey, you know, I don't usually consult Matthew Henry's commentary, but maybe I should because it's a good, solid, reformed commentary. And then what we're doing is we are, we are pushing people not only towards confessionalism, but we're pushing people towards the writings of the men who wrote the confession. And I think what that's doing is really, like you said, I like that image you used of, the, of getting into the honeycomb. I mean, at that point, we're really digging deep into the roots of our, our uh, reformed heritage. So, so what, what could be your ultimate joy that is produced from the Presbyterian? My ultimate joy. My ultimate joy would be, and, and I've gotten to see some of this already, so it's really great. My ultimate joy would be to lead men and women who are uh, reformed in their convictions and really trying to seek where God would place them in terms of church, um, in terms of how to lead their families, how to lead their wives. Um, I would really like to see them get pushed into more confessional churches so that we can see a real resurgence amongst the confessional churches that we have here in our American context. I'm speaking for America because I can't speak outside that context. But, um, you know, the OPC, the PCA, the RPCNA, um, the RCUS, the URCNA, I could keep going. These are historically reformed all those Napark churches, right? Mm. Historically reformed churches that have been doing this for years, who, who have been steeped in the confessions. And they have been um, forming believers and forming solid Christians. And I really want to see people get pushed into those kinds of churches because I, I ultimately think it's good for our spiritual growth. I think, it, I think that it will help us better understand the glory of God and what we have been given in salvation through Jesus Christ. So that, that would be my joy. And I've gotten to see that. I've gotten some responses back, folks messaging or emailing me and saying, you know, I've been really thinking a lot about what you've been saying. And, um, you know, I've been, I've been following your blog and, you know, there's this OPC down the road and I've started attending and it's been really good for me. And I think I'm going to start going more. And I think to myself, yes, that's what we need. We need more of that because we, we believe that these churches teach truth. And we want people to be um, excited about that. And we want people to be engaged in that. And we want to see that grow. That, what you're saying excites me. It excites me because I, I totally buy the vision you're casting there. That's part of the reason why we started the Confessional Collective. We want to see people hungering for more because there are churches that that offer this truth but they need revitalization some of them are yet to be planted yet um some need to be replanted but the reality is there are churches already out there where the truth exists and people need to see the need for for that depth of 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 truth um 
I do want to ask you a question. I mean, you're going to call it the Presbyterian, and I got to ask you, who's your favorite Presbyterian? (laughs) (laughs) Who's your favorite old dad guy who's Presbyterian? Come on, man. Oh, oh, wow, man. That's a good one. That's a good one. You know, this is going to be an unsurprising answer, and it'll seem like kind of a cop-out. I'm going to do a Calvin juke on you and say John Calvin, and I'm going to tell you why. <laughs> that's, that's not a bad juke, though. You know what I'm saying? He's, he's a pretty solid dude. Yeah, and I'm going to tell you why. Calvin, it, I, I've been spending this year reading a lot of Calvin. I, I've read the Institutes before, but this year what I've actually been doing, um, I I'm started the year, I read through the first volume of his tracts and letters, so that includes his um, his letter to uh, reply to Cardinal Sadaletto, who was trying to get people to come back to Rome in Geneva. I read about his life that Beza wrote. I read about um, just a, a number of things he wrote. Um, his his inventory of relics, which you've, if you've never read, is one of the most hysterical theological writings I've ever read in my life, where he goes through all of the relics that the Catholic Church owns and shows that there's like you know, a hundred thumbs of Saint so-and-so. <laughs> so it's hysterical. But at any rate, I say Calvin because he's not, he, in one sense, everybody says, yes, Calvin. We're all Calvinists, right? But how many Calvinists have actually sat down and read Calvin hmm. and have actually understood what Calvin was animated by, what his vision was? And one of the things that really sticks out to me and that really mean meant a lot to me calvin was not a an ivory tower theologian calvin was a man persecuted for his beliefs who exiled to another country who was raising a a family who was pastoring a church preaching twice a day multiple days of the week um, who was having members of his church martyred for what they believed and who would be writing commentaries on the Psalms while he was um, helping his child um, who was cutting teeth at the time. You know, that he was really an on-the-ground, rooted, pastoral theologian. And he cast a vision that has influenced all of our Reformed heritage in so many ways. And um, he, I really look at him also as a bridge between what we would consider maybe the more modern Puritan vision, the more modern uh, Southern Presbyterian, um, more Princeton school. Okay, those are, those are the major ones we think of in a more modern context. Calvin is the bridge between that and the church that came before. Hmm. So when you read his commentaries and when you read his works, he's quoting from Augustine. He's um, quoting from other church fathers. Um, Basil, Chrysostom, all of these guys. So he's really the bridge for us to the patristics. And one of the things that I've been really more interested in recently, and that I think really the confession will take you even farther, is getting into the patristics, um, getting into the early church fathers. And what you find when you go there is they were reformed too. Hmm. And if any of my Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox friends who I talk to on social media hear that, that right now they're going to be screaming, but it's true. (laughs) (laughs) 
No, and even even the bad vibe people throw out about Calvin, you know, one is always, well, if you have Calvinism, you don't need missions. He was a great missionary. He sent he sent Absolutely. people around the world to preach the gospel. Brazil is one of the earliest places where uh, he sent missionaries. Um, Absolutely. You know, another one is the 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 bad talk you always get on uh, Servetus, uh, the, the the you know the the martyrdom there, or whatever you want to call it, of of that that heretic. <laughs> but right. but the very fact that he went constantly to in his imprisonment to try to convert him, yeah. j- just shows no. you the heart of the man that that uh, oftentimes is given a, a bad rap. Absolutely, and you know, just a short biographical note to insert here. The reason you're talking to me today is because of John Calvin. Hmm. John Calvin, by pastoring that church in Geneva, he he animated a whole country of French Reformed uh, folks, the, the the French Huguenots. And if my my great grandfather, going back twelve generations, was one of the French Huguenot settlers who settled in New York and who founded a number of churches in New York that have been here since the 17th century. So to, to say that Calvin wasn't a missionary, I completely agree with you is absurd because he sent people all over the world. I mean, Knox was in his congregation and Knox went to Scotland and totally turned the world upside down there and revitalized a nation that was dying because it didn't have the gospel. So absolutely, I, John Calvin is one of our premier missionaries for sure. Yeah, it, there's no no reason you can't have a man crush on John Calvin. Amen. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> let's uh, let's let's probe a little deeper um, in in your writing, and I I just want to ask a, a a couple uh, deeper questions as a writer, which you you are. I mean, if anybody's taking the time to read your writing, you're not seminary trained. And, and I know that there's a sense in which the, the confessions, they act as your guardrails. But what would you say as a writer um, are some of your greatest challenges? Yeah. One, one of the challenge, a couple, a couple of challenges. The first one that I think of is probably one of the more practical is uh, I work a full-time job, you know, in a, in a field unrelated to anything theological or, or any, any church ministry. Um, and I, you know, I have to come home and I have to diaper kids and I have to fill bottles and I have to, you know, do all that stuff that a dad would do, you know, lead family worship, all that stuff. Um, so there's one of the challenges I run into is just time constraints. Um, and some people say, how do you do it? Where do you find the time? And I say to them, man, I don't know where I find the time. I don't have a magic formula for you. I, all I know is, is that it's a passion that I have. And so I do it. And when the passion runs out, well, then the Presbyterian is over because that passion is what drives me. And it really is, I think God's providence that gives me time and that gives me the energy and the focus sometimes late at night, sometimes early in the morning to get up and to, and to read the scriptures and to go, you know, I, I want, I'm seeing something here that is uh, some deep truth here and I want to get into the deep things of God and, and I'm going to write something about it, you know? And so, so that, that's, that's one of the challenges I face and, and, and how I overcome it. Um, another one that I face is, you know, I, I really, and, and you'll notice this at the bottom of my blog. If you, if you look at my bio, I make it very clear that I'm not a licensed minister and I see my role as pointing people towards 
the church, the Reformed churches, uh, pointing people towards the shepherds that God has entrusted his church with. And I, I always, one of the challenges I have is always trying to make sure I, I don't fall into thinking that I am somehow my own authority or somehow my own, um, I don't know how else to put that, my own authority. I don't want folks to be coming to the Presbyterian and thinking, yeah, okay, Devin Mead, this guy's got it. No, what I'm hoping is whatever you're reading on my blog is making you go down the road and investigate that small Presbyterian church that's going to be doing a catechesis class this Sunday. That's And, and so that's one of the other challenges. I, I, I never want to want people to think that this is the be all and end all. And I, to be honest with you, I don't think anybody ever would. But if that ever happens, no, that no, would be, no, but I can, be, I can definitely appreciate what you're saying. Um, you know, you, you, you joke about your wife saying this is just a narcissistic uh, desire to show everybody what beer you're drinking. <laughs> but um, there, there comes a, a, a danger um, when we can be a writer, and especially when you're a talented writer, is people begin to almost take whatever you say as gospel. And that can yeah. be a very dangerous thing. But, I mean, I just assume just from, just from the time we've been able to spend together, um, you definitely have a great appreciation for the confessions. And, I, and as I said just a few minutes ago, I know you use those. I strongly believe you use those as your guardrails. And, you, and like you said, anytime you even if you would differ than it, you would definitely try to do your due diligence to really wrestle through that. Um, but I guess when you look at that, and you begin to think through that, how do you begin to make sure that you're saying, hey, what I'm doing here, guys, isn't something that just anybody should be doing? Because today everybody has their Twitter account, everybody has their blog, and everybody's throwing stuff around out there. What do you say to that young guy who's just starting into theology and wants a place to be able to share what he knows? Absolutely. What I say to him is, before you jump in and before you start sharing that knowledge, um, you should make sure that you are doing, you should be attending to the means of grace that God has given. So before you were to start your blog, are you in the word every day? Because we believe that the word is a means of grace. Are you attending to the preaching of God's word? So when you go to church on Sunday, are you, listening to, meditating on what your pastor is saying. And is that informing your theology? Are you attending to the sacraments of the church? Are you availing yourself of the confession to learn the system of doctrine that it teaches and to really understand that and to understand the context out of which the teaching of the confession comes? Um, those are really, I think, some of the more important things. Are you in your home attending to private worship and family worship? Doing those things comes first. And, in, and while that may not get you glory on social media, it's not about us getting glory. It's about God getting glory. And it's about using the means of grace that he has given. And uh, one of the things that we really have to guard our hearts against, because we are living in a context where the glamorous and the the big and the, the shiny lights really pushes us to think that somehow we can do something extraordinary 
for God. And uh, I, I, I let, I'm starting to read through Michael Horton's book, Ordinary, and I'm really appreciating it. Uh, really, there's more to being an ordinary Christian than we think of. And maybe before jumping into doing a blog, you should make sure that you're attending to those ordinary means that God has given um, so that you're being formed in a biblical way. Man, I really, really dig what you're saying because you talk about these ordinary means of grace starting there. And I think we live in this celebrity pastor world where everybody wants to create an identity, right, and stick it out there. And it's interesting because in in Timothy Keller's book on preaching, he talks about the, the battle of identity today that people struggle to to try to develop themselves and, and, and strike out on their own and, and the use of blogs and, and Twitter accounts and all these things, right, to do that, to create their own kind of image. But the doctrines of justification, the doctrine of the union with Christ, uh, the doctrine of our adoption, these things all bring us back to the truth that really it's about Him and who we are in Him. And what I clearly see here is is that that has to be a foundation before anybody uh, begins to write, uh, anybody begins to uh, peddle their goods, if you will, because that could just be dangerous. It, it can be absolutely dangerous. And another thing that I really like what you were driving home was, was the fact that you have to wrestle these things out because I think too many guys don't. And because they don't, what ultimately ends up happening is that these guys end up like almost like a shotgun blast because their doctrine isn't consistent, end up saying things that nullify each other. And that's just, you know, they write one blog post and then they turn around and write another blog post and both these blog posts just totally uh, don't even agree, you know. And and it shows the confusion of of not only them, but it it, it shows – uh, the confusion in the church, which th- it's not there necessarily, but it's there because that's what people are reading and seeing. And, um, you know, it, it adds to a, a, a quiet discontent amongst many. So definitely dig what you're saying there, man. That's it, it, solid. Um, I want to pick your brain a little bit. My, yeah. uh, my, uh, my podcast is aimed at, at laymen. My podcast is also aimed at church planters and those who are replanting and, and, and pastors. And, I have a layman on the show, and I, and I use that term with all due respect because there is a sense in which I want to hear from you, and I want you to speak to the pastors, the planters, the replanters, and, and I want you to speak to them as a man who cares about the confessional truths. But what is it, if you could sit in a room with, let's say, 25, 30 guys that are planting or replanting or pastoring churches, what is it that you would say, hey, this is what matters to me? about church. Yeah. What would you say to him? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. I can kind of think of two ways that I would answer that. Um, the first thing is, you know, I, I would say it, it's pretty important. I think you and I would both agree as a pl- church planter and as a pastor, you do need to know the culture that you're ministering in. And I, I, I think the reformed do a pretty good job of that. But um, one of the things that I have noticed is a big trend amongst particularly millennials and whether we think it's good or bad in a certain way is kind of irrelevant because it just is. One of the trends among millennials is a deep desire to be rooted 
because we live in a world that's becoming unrooted, that's becoming destabilized. And I I think where we, why we see a lot of younger guys coming into the reformed tradition, not only because they're being convicted by the scriptural truth that it holds, but I think that they're also recognizing that there is a rootedness to our tradition, that it is not the, the church that popped up on the corner last month, that it's something that's been here a while, that it has a confession of faith that has stood the test of time, and that isn't um, something that was made up. You know, just you and I were talking just before the podcast, you know, church planners trying to make a confession of faith. It's like, why reinvent the wheel? You know, I, and, and so I think that we maybe can have a tendency to shy away in the interest of um, reaching the lost or reaching younger Christians. Um, we may shy away from some of those things that make us distinctive. And I'm not saying that we have to um, have all of our reformed, um, all of our reformed badges showing on our shoulder wherever we go. But I think that we do need to not shy away from what makes us distinctly reformed and what our tradition says. I think that that's important. I think that this generation wants that. I see that in my interactions with young reformed guys. They really have a deep hunger for understanding what the reformed tradition has to say. So I I would say to church planners, don't shy away from that. Um, don't, Don't shy away from your reformed identity. Because I think people want to explore that. They want to know about that. What is that about? So that's that's kind of the one way I would I would I would form it. You know, in another sense, and and I don't know if this is if this is you know uh, unhelpful, but for a group of pastors, in another sense, I would say to them, don't form your ministry around the desires of millennials. <laughs> <laughs> So on the one hand, yes, we know that this is what's going on with them, but don't don't form it around that. Why? Because the Reformed tradition, we were just talking about those ordinary means of grace. The Reformed tradition has just been plugging along for centuries now. And at the end of the day, you can have a million cool programs. You can have a great children's ministry. You could have a great band. You could have a great, you could have a great everything. But at the end of the day, if you were to strip that all away, what do you ultimately have? Word and sacrament. That's what you have. Preach the word, administer the sacraments, and do discipline in a biblical way. And that sounds boring to a certain person, but I think we're noticing a trend where a lot of people, because that's stable and because that's something that is, I think, tangible and concrete, I think a lot of people are drawn to that these days. So I would say just keep doing what Reformed churches have always done because it's biblical and because it's it's what Christ ultimately wants for his church. And what about pastors? What, what are you looking for in a pastor? Uh, that's a good question. We talked about Mark Driscoll earlier and how I, how he said something that was really wrong. So now I'm gonna I'm gonna go back and say something that he once said that was very right. Because <laughs> okay, he was once asked something about um, what his impression was of younger guys when they're looking to a pastor, and he said that it's been his impression 
that when when uh, when younger men go to a church, they look at the pastor and they they look at him and they say, "I'll follow that guy," or they won't. And I, I actually think that was a good insight. To a certain extent, I think, and, and that can be dangerous because we can can be trying to meet other people's expectations. But on the other hand, I think that there's uh, he 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 was perceptive at that point. What I'm looking for in a pastor is somebody that I know has conviction and that I know, um, I know in my own heart, I have a, I have a, um, a temptation to fall into every wind of doctrine if I'm not careful. And so I need a pastor who knows what he believes and who is firm in it and not wooden, who's willing to explore other things, but who at the end of the day, he has conviction and will teach on that and who will preach on that and who will disciple um, his sheep based on the principles that he holds. And, and that's really what I'm ultimately looking for. I don't care what kind of jeans he wears. In fact, if, if the dude buys off the rack JCPenney suits, I don't care. <laughs> I'm looking for a guy who has conviction and who is going to stand by that. And thankfully, if you're going into a more confessional reformed church, those convictions are the ones that we believe scripture teaches. And the dude will probably be wearing a robe anyway. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> De Devin, I have had a blast and um, I am just uh, thrilled with what you got going on at the Presbyterian and um, the reformed collective uh, the reform pod pub <laughs> you you yeah. got a lot of you had a lot of a lot of things going on and i'm just really blessed by the fact that we had this opportunity to sit down and talk and, and chew over some very important uh matters that i think uh in regards to the church and and and, and confessionalism at large so thanks for your time brother Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me. And I love the work you guys are doing on the Confessional Collective. I love listening in. This is a much needed podcast. So blessings to you guys. And this is something good for the kingdom. Awesome. Take care, everybody. See you next week. Thanks for listening to the Confessional Collective podcast. For more information and resources, please visit confessionalcollective.com. And be sure to like our Facebook page.